I have local and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thanks for joining me this Monday, December 18th. I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season, finding uh, some time to get together with family and friends and colleagues, maybe. Um, if not, if you haven't done it so far, you still have a couple weeks to get it done. I am going to be here all this week, but I am going to not be here next week. I uh, am going to take off the week between the holidays, and um, I may not be back on January 2nd, at least for a few days. I'm having some outpatient surgery uh, so hopefully I will be back back on the radio uh, Friday of the new year is uh, right now. My tentative plan is to be back Friday the 5th. So, um, oh, one other housekeeping note of importance. Today at four o'clock, we are going to be joined by David Hochberg. A lot of what we're going to do this week, not everything, but a lot of what we're going to do this week is talk to uh, some of the people you've come to know and appreciate over the last few years and get their sense of, uh, for whatever area of expertise they have, what were the important things that happened in 2023 and what they see coming in 2024, which is um, one of the things that we're going to be doing with two people today, we are going to be talking to Terry Terry Cosgrove, who, until he retired, for years led Personal PAC, which was the organization that was responsible for the state of Illinois being prepared for the fall of Roe v. Wade like no other state was. You know, he, he made sure that old abortion laws that were on the books, abortion laws, that had never been enforced because of Roe v. Wade, he made sure we went back and cleaned those off, got rid of them before Roe v. Wade ever fell. And people would be like, Terry, we don't, it doesn't matter. You know, we have this constitutional protection. It doesn't matter. We're never going to go back. Roe v. Wade will never be overturned. And uh, he was not quite so optimistic. He felt that under the right circumstances, Roe v. Wade could potentially be overturned. And if that happened, we didn't want to find ourselves in the same place that Wisconsin found itself, where suddenly um, a, a law that isn't even about abortion, a law that was originally designed uh, to keep people from beating up a woman so badly that they killed her baby, but was interpreted as an abortion law from the 1800s, went into effect. Terry Cosgrove is the reason why Illinois didn't have to wade through so much old legislation and why Illinois was able to protect a woman's right to have control over her own body. We're going to talk to Terry in the 3 o'clock hour about, you know, abortion, I mean, as you well know, there are a lot of states. I'm looking at you, Texas. 
I'm looking at you, Florida, Alabama, you're no day at the beach. There are a lot of states that really seem to try to be rolling all this back. We will talk to Terry about what's going on and if he sees any light at the end of the tunnel for 2024. And in the four o'clock hour, we are going to uh, welcome David Hochberg. You uh, may have seen where um, the Fed had an opportunity to raise mortgage rates, but they did not. In fact, um, it looks like by the end of 2024, it's possible that um, almost an entire percentage point could be rolled back by the Feds. We've already seen um, a slight decrease in the rates for home mortgages. They were seven and over. And uh, now we'll have to ask David this for sure, but I believe they're in the sixes. So uh, what's what's going to happen and what's the timetable for that? I want to ask him about that. Also, you may have seen reporting on this case where it was discovered that a naval credit union, you know, the kind of place that a lot of people, particularly vets, go when they're trying to get financing for a house, the statistics came to light that they were turning down African-American, potential African-American borrowers at a rate that was twice what they were doing if the person asking for the loan was white. Um, We are going to talk to David about that and other things, but I want to let you know, as always, David um, made it clear that he is ready to take your calls and answer your questions. So use until 4 o'clock. David's here from 4 to 5. So until then... Text me your questions, um, 773-763-9278, If you have a question and you have never texted us before, an easy way to remember the number is with um, some letters. So think 773 773- 763 WCPT. I will be um, keeping an eye on all of your questions. Part of the problem we have is, you know, David comes on and we start talking. And as we're talking, you start thinking of what you'd like to ask him or a situation you want to run by him. He's very good with um, anything to do with credit, credit scores, loans, student loans, mortgage loans. So the the longer David and I talk, the more people realize that they do have a question for him. And then suddenly at the end of our time together, questions and texts start pouring in. And then it's really frustrating for both of us because we've run out of time. And usually there's a lot of um, there's a lot of people with questions we can't get to. So I'm going to ask you to start thinking about. David Hochberg now. Do you have a question about your kids and their credit scores or their credit cards? 
Are your kids trying to buy a house? Are you trying to buy a house? Uh, are you curious about where interest rates are going to go if the Fed keeps lowering their rates? Shoot me a text, 773-763-WCPT, okay? And I will collect them all. And the sooner you can get your question in, the more likely we all are to get it answered, okay? <laughs> Sounds good. Um, gosh, um, we have even have not even gotten to the news of the day. Uh, why don't we take a break right now and come back with that in a minute? Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There is some speculation that the uh, case against Ed Burke will go to the jury today. After what's been what? Let's hear what the Tribune, um, the Tribune reporters on this, uh, Ray Meissner, Ray, Ray Long, and Megan Cropot. By the way, later in the week, we're going to talk to Ray, Ray Long about this trial. Uh, it's been five weeks of testimony, 40 witnesses, 100 secret recordings, two COVID delays, and 16 hours of closing arguments. Whew. That's a lot of closing arguments. Um, the trial uh, was has gone to the jury. They are supposed to start deliberating today. Of course, the first thing they do is elect a four-person, and then they go, they look through all the charges and um, start taking votes and looking over evidence and having conversations about this. The judge in this case, uh, U.S. District Judge Virginia Kendall, said that uh, she doesn't want the jury to feel rushed. So if they do not have a verdict by this Friday, they're not going to come back till after the new year. Um, I think she's afraid that that they will rush, literally rush to judgment because they want to have the holidays with their families. So she has um, let them know that they don't have to worry about that, that they can. Deliberate as long as is necessary, and if the deliberations need to go into another week, it will happen literally next year. Ed Burke, um, who, as many of you know, was an alderman for over five decades, is facing 14 counts, racketeering, a federal bribery, attempted extortion, conspiracy to commit extortion, and using interstate commerce to facilitate an unlawful activity. So we shall see. Ray Long has uh, been in the courtroom since the trial started, and he is going to be joining us we planned it for Thursday. We were kind of hoping that maybe there would be a jury verdict by then. But whether or not the jury has made its decision, we're still going to talk to uh, Ray Long on Thursday and find out his thoughts about 
how the uh, trial went and how how he thinks the evidence stacked up, whether or not it was convincing. You may have seen uh, Ray Long on social media over the weekend, too. There was a big protest. Chicago Tribune journalists, Chicago Tribune writers, workers have been working without a contract um, for like five years now. Alden didn't want to give them a new contract. And um, so there have been, you know, no pay raises, no contract, no new contract, no new pay raises, not even cost of living raises. They are also claiming that Alden wants to stop contributing to their 401ks. Um, And they're a little testy about it. There was a big protest and our good friend Ray Long was front and center. He was out there with the bullhorn encouraging people to stay strong, stay united, and continue to protest. Five years without a new contract? Mm. Alden just recently, you may have read, has started buying more newspaper companies again. They've been a little more careful with the Chicago Tribune than with some of the other papers that they've bought, because a lot of times, you know, they're they're one of those hedge funds that doesn't build anything, doesn't create anything. They take everything apart. They're known for, you know, basically buying something and selling it off for parts because the parts are worth more than the business. And, you know, there have been other people who've done this sort of thing. Um, and it, no matter what business you work in, if somebody like this buys it, it's always bad news. It is, it is always bad news. Um, when you've got something that is so important to the community, it is particularly difficult um our local newspapers neighborhood newspapers have all but disappeared but local newspapers the journalists who work for them are really responsible for holding government to account you know um greg pratt um reporter for the tribune has gone to an investigative unit we can't Expect the Better Government Association to do everything, to pick up all the slack. It is local newspapers who have held legislators and government offices to account. Without them, it's going to be a lot easier to get away with the bad stuff, to be completely honest. It's important. It's not just. It's not just a business. It's a public service. Only. Organizations like Alden Capital don't seem to um, really grasp that aspect. Of the whole process. Which is really too bad. There is um, there is another trial going on, um, and that is the uh, the trial of Mike Madigan. 
Um, and we are expecting sentences for the ComEd 4, Mike Madigan, another lawmaker in power for decade after decade and uh, accused of corruption. Um, there is going to be probably a delay in um, in these in Madigan's trial and the sentencing because of the waiting for the Supreme Court to rule on a corruption case out of Northwest Indiana, and that case has implications for the laws that were used in these cases. So everything is probably going to be on hold for a while here. Do I have any good local news? Come on. There must be something. Well, okay. Um, How about this? The um, adjunct faculty at Columbia College in downtown Chicago, and and, uh, the vast majority of their faculty are adjuncts. I used to teach there. When you're an adjunct faculty member, you're not on a tenure track. In other words, you're not teaching at Columbia College because, you know, this is where you want to spend your whole academic career and you're hoping that you will move uh, up to professor. No, if you're an assistant professor, then you're on a track to become a full professor. But if you're an adjunct, lots of times those are people who have other jobs in the real world and they come to teach whatever their expertise is. So lots of times those people aren't even interested in pursuing um, a a full-time, lifelong career. But lots of times those adjuncts aren't paid very well. Well, at Columbia, they went on strike. Um, They... um, They felt the classes were too big and they had other issues. Well, the good news that I can share with you today is that there is a tentative deal. The strike's been going on since October, but now there is a a tentative deal um, that will supposedly address issues like class size and some cuts to curriculum. So how about that? See, it's not all bad news locally. It's not all corruption and crime and sentencing. Though I will say there's a lot of it. There is a lot of it. And on the world stage, the war in Ukraine is... um, not progressing to a great degree. Um, the Washington Post revi- reporting that that uh, Ukraine's top general found that his office was bugged, which is kind of um, kind of interesting. Uh, Hungary, which is for some reason still a member of NATO. Uh, is trying to block any funding that they have been providing for Ukraine. And as you know, funding for Ukraine is um, on hold here. No package was voted on. 
before Mike Johnson told everybody to go home for the holidays. Um, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky showed up to try to make a personal plea. But um, it was ineffective. Mike Johnson, uh, one of the ultra far right leading the uh, Congress right now, determined, as we've heard from some of the Republican senators, to use this bargaining chip. That's how they're looking at funding for Ukraine. It's a bargaining chip. And what do they want? Nothing to do with Ukraine. They could care less. They want uh, basically to hamstring, if not almost put an end to any kind of migration, immigration. Not just that they want more money for it, which is needed, not just that they want the system to be more efficient. They want to make people start jumping through all kinds of hoops that will basically make it all but impossible to become a legal migrant. Oh, and the Chicago City Council passed um, an interesting bill that, um, remember we talked about how they want to start punishing the bus companies? Well, they have passed legislation so that if a, a bus full of migrants comes to Chicago and it doesn't follow all the rules and drop the people where they're supposed to be dropped, how they're supposed to be dropped, um, the bus will be impounded and the bus company, uh, they will pursue the bus company in court. They've already done it to one bus. Some of the bus companies are trying to get around it by instead of bringing people into the city of Chicago, they're dropping them off at um, cities in northern Illinois. But now a lot of these towns in northern Illinois are passing these bus laws so that they can also... If the if they don't have the proper permit, if they're not dropping the migrants where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to be, they impound the bus and um, and financially go after the bus company. That's one way to tackle the problem, I guess. We are going to take a break. We are going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. Just this morning... I was reading on social media somebody reporting that President Biden is getting really, really frustrated. Why is he getting frustrated? Because the economy is doing so well. Inflation dropping. People have job opportunities. Prices are down. And yet there still seems to be in some quarters this sense that President Biden isn't doing anything to uh, help people with their day-to-day lives and their day-to-day expenses. This is, it's a real disconnect. Claudia Sam is the founder of Sam Consulting. She's a former Federal Reserve and White House economist. Uh, she has been thinking a lot about this problem and joins us now to talk about it. Claudia, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, do you first of all, do you agree with the premise that there seems to be a disconnect between what Joe Biden is doing for the economy and what people are are saying, what their sense of what uh, is happening with the economy? Absolutely. 
Uh, and my Twitter mentions, inbox, all that, like, I have evidence that people are angry about the disconnect. And I, I think it's an important one to explore. I'm I'm an economist by training. I'm not political. I try to be very independent in my work. So it it is a something I've been very curious about because I need to understand if I give policy advice, what what's going on. Now, I've spent a lot of time working on this, and I do think that there are arguments to be made that like we're extra gloomy for a reason. I mean, we would be gloomy anyways. Inflation is high. Right? Prices mm-hmm. have risen a lot. But it's like it's like 1970s kind of gloomy. Like This is not the 70s. Unemployment's very low. So I think there's probably some economic pieces that we don't uh, capture very well. And I'm also but having worked on this for... That while it certainly mm-hmm. isn't the two percent figure that the Fed wants, inflation is coming down. Right, inflation. I mean, thankfully, inflation has slowed, and it slowed a lot in this past year. Now, prices are high. I mean, we had two years of inflation that was higher than we've been experiencing for several years, and so that adds up. So even though inflation is coming down, those prices are high. There are some prices, like used cars, some other goods, uh, gasoline. There's some that the prices have come down, right? Like their prices falling. In general, prices don't do that. And frankly, the only time that we have widespread decreases in prices, that was the Great Depression. We don't want to do that again. The way you get out of it is wages grow enough that they catch up and, and go past uh, the the higher prices, then we're we're getting there. Um, but I think it's just it's going to take some time for people to look around and be like, oh, things are things are getting better. Somebody I was talking to uh, in, in the last week or two said framed it like this: if if you like say when things were at their worst, if you were paying five dollars for a gallon of gas. <laughs> And now gas is down to $3 a gallon. You look at that and you go, yay, gas price is coming mm-hmm. down. But if you remember maybe six years ago when you were paying $2 a gallon and that's mm-hmm. what's fixed in your head, you look at $3 and you go, oh, my God, prices are still so high. Mm-hmm. What can we, how do we help people reframe the way they think about these things? I don't, I really don't know the answer to that question. And on some level, like, I, I'm not sure. I mean, the White House cares about the answer to that question. But it, when I go and look at surveys, and I wrote about this on my Substack, I had a piece of this, most Americans are financially better off than before the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. And I went to surveys where we asked people, do you have a job? What's your income? How much wealth do you have? I mean, these are all different surveys. They look great. Not for everybody. But most Americans, like top, you know, 50% of them, you can see across many measures are better off. And frankly, often it's people that have been left behind for a long time. Like the biggest wage gains came to the um, lowest paid like service sector jobs. So that's what I care about. I want people to be able to go out of the grocery and have the food they need. I get it. They're going to be mad that the, the price tag is higher. But... People are getting it. So I don't, like, that's for me. I'm not sure. If it were the other way around, I would be very concerned. Like, if people were happy, but they weren't eating. Right? So. So 
I know everybody says that um, in his first term around this time, President Obama Mm -hmm. was polling really badly and eventually uh, won a second term regardless. And so maybe we should Mm -hmm. not pay attention to the polls. Do you think that when it comes to the economy, there are um, measures, whether they be polls or something else that that we can rely on? Because, you know, politically, Mm -hmm. polls um, in the last few years haven't been very good at really predicting, like, who's going to win an election and who's necessarily Mm going to lose. Yeah, and I, given how bad the economy was last year, like, inflation was so high that the Democrats, like, came out of the midterms, not in the worst place. I mean, to me, that was just like, oh, wow, maybe... Maybe the vote, and there's a lot of other issues that one votes on in the economy. I do think at this point, these economic sentiment figures, and I look out, and there's been a lot of polls. I really think they're just a protest vote against Biden among the Democrats, because there's still this, like, oh, we don't want him to run. Because um, otherwise, it doesn't make any sense that the Democrats, some of them are as angry in these. So I think, you know, the economy, our, our finances, it's very much wrapped up with kind of our general feeling about the world. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, but I think it's going to be tricky. And it is so polarized. Like, there's, I mean, I get it. People are angry. But so to me, like the sentiment data, I use them all the time. My forecasting, my policy work, I have completely put them aside. Because whatever's really? in there is not, yeah, because it's not economics. Like, I just, I think COVID really broke us. And it's going to take time to get away from it. I think social media is potentially amplifying the bad news. I mean, I was, I'd done some research on this for my Bloomberg opinion pieces. And uh, I was talking actually to someone at the White House about this. And uh, I told him, I said, you, you can't, like more good news is not going to be enough. You have to get less bad news. And they're like, well, how do we do that? I'm like, well, maybe, maybe go make up with the progressives. <laughs> it's like, you shouldn't be getting bad news from your, your own party. And I think, you know, we're finally starting to get some good news out there. Um, but yeah, whatever there's a, and there's, I think politics are absolutely in there. So yeah, it's really too bad. Cause I found the sentiment surveys really informative in the past for people's behavior, but they've been predicting a recession for two years Yeah, and, and the world looks great. I mean, not, it, it's getting so much better and really the labor market to, for it to be as strong as it is. I mean, that is so important for people. Speaking about the recession, you know, I've been hearing, oh, it's coming, it's coming just recently. And I mean, within the last few weeks, I'm I started to see headlines like, oh, you know, we may have avoided a recession. So now Mm -hmm. we're not headed for a recession. Is that correct, Claudia? So the entire time I have said that a recession was not inevitable, like we didn't need one and. It has not been my call, right? My um, baseline forecast to this whole thing has been no recession. And yes, it is absolutely heartening. I mean, last year was more of an intellectual case, like COVID and Ukraine that pushed up inflation and it was going to work itself out. This year, it's like reality is on my side here, right? We are we are in a really, we could uh, get what they call the soft landing, so get inflation back down around 2% and keep unemployment around 4 And that's like that's the impossible, not just being possible, it's the impossible happening. 
Right? We don't have a history of doing that. So it's not we're not there yet. I don't you know want to get so too it, cavalier that, about you, it. Would you say that's an aspirational goal? That's something we should just continue to work toward, whether or not you know we ever we ever actually get there. You know how most people want to lose twenty yeah. pounds. It's aspirational, yeah. and you work toward <laughs> it. Doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get there. The Fed is going to get us to two percent inflation. Really? Come hell or high water. Oof. Yeah. I mean, they, they know how, and this has been com- very comforting with the Fed. I mean, despite the fact that they raised interest rates so fast last year, I mean, they have never and are not trying to cause a recession. There have been people, you know, uh, in economists like Larry Summers that said we need a recession to get inflation down. The Fed never bought into that. And frankly, I mean, Paul Volcker's Fed, they caused a recession. I mean, they felt like they needed to do that to break inflation. This Fed could do that, right? Like, they know how to get it down pretty pretty fast, and they haven't done that, and I don't expect them to. And yet, if we get kind of stuck around 3%, which is, you know, roughly where we're at right now, then they're going to step back in and take more action in terms of higher rates. But that's not what it looks like. I mean, it really, like, we can really, we can see the runway. Like we're going to land this plane. So, um, but it's, we still have some turbulence to go. I mean, this has been a really rough ride and the, un, the unprecedented has happened and we have had a lot of bad luck. Uh, so, you know, given what we know now about the world, it looks like we're on the path and, but the world surprises us sometimes. Yes. These things um, don't necessarily uh, follow an algorithm that we can just plop in and predict the next few months. Claudia, we need to take a quick Mm -hmm. break. I'm talking to Claudia Sam, who's a former Federal Reserve economist. We're going to continue our talk right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Claudia Sam. She's a former Federal Reserve economist. She now has her own consulting company called Sam Consulting. And uh, Claudia, I have to read something that I found amusing. Of course, I'm a little odd, so put it in context. Uh, in the Washington Post, um, head of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, was interviewed recently, and he said he was asked what he does for fun And he says, for me, a big, big party, I mean, this is really as fun as it gets, is a really good inflation report. Mm -hmm. I saw that. That's an excellent article, by the way. Uh, Janet Yellen also appears later. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. No, that's a... She's good. He was... I mean, I worked... When I was at the Fed, I started in 2007. I left in 2019. So I worked for... Um, ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, and then Jay Powell. And I also, I mean, he had been a governor there before, and I, I have I have the utmost respect for him. And this is an incredibly hard job, and yet he has navigated this. And then, especially during 2020, like with so much humanity, like when he would talk, it's been tough when the inflation and all that, you know, the kind of talking with people, but I just find him very... Even when I disagree with the direction they're going, it's a, I'm just, 
really impressed. And last week's press conference last Wednesday, that was a good one. He was, it was the happiest I had seen him like since inflation took off or actually since COVID began. He's not known as a smiley kind of giddy guy. <laughs> he has a, he has a good sense of humor. Uh, and Oh, the other thing that I found so fun about him is right when he started the governor, I had went to a small meeting with him. He wanted to learn about uh, income inequality He's not an economist. He's extremely curious, right? And, you know, brought another economist in to talk about the research. And when I was leaving, he's like, wow, this is a big day for you. And I was like, yeah, I'm in your office, like the <laughs> governor. And he's like, Noah Smith retweeted you on Twitter. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, wow. I was like, I almost fell over. I mean, Noah's a friend, but I mean, Jay is a, a Twitter fan, which, I mean, I love Twitter probably. I don't right now because it's like kind of a mess. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's just, it's a testament to his intellectual curiosity, right? To want to go out and learn more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, he can be good natured. I mean, the Fed chair has to be pretty straight laced and sober out in public. You know, I mean, you want people, yeah. I mean, he needs to look like he's serious. But yeah, no, I mean, he's a, he's a person too. It's just kind of fun. So you think um, it's good to have him as head of the Federal Reserve and that he seems to have been a steady hand so far. And you think that's indicative of who he is and who we can continue to expect him to be? Yes, I wrote a New York Times opinion piece about him. I guess it was in 2021. So early, like March, so before the inflation took off. And I mean, I, I think really highly of him. I think that he has helped the Fed. I mean, he continued what Janet Yellen started, but really think about workers, the full employment piece of mm-hmm. their dual mandate. So to me, that's, I mean, that was something the Fed had done wrong for a long time. I mean, to have full employment and uh, stable prices. So, but the one thing that was in the article, I got a lot of flack from my peers, is I said, you know, we are so lucky that he is not a trained economist. And that didn't really? go over you well, but I mean, that? yeah, yeah, and I believe it too. And it's, it has been so true, especially in this last couple of years. Jay Powell came out of financial markets, right? Like he, his peers are the ones who, or his former peers are the ones that are figuring out, like, how do we interpret the Fed? How do we change the interest rates? Because again, for people and businesses, it's the market interest rates that matter. It's not like the federal funds rate. Nobody but banks gets to borrow at the federal funds rate. So his ability to talk to markets, mm-hmm. I think, has done an immense amount of good because this was this was an absolute wild ride. And his judgment in terms of financial markets, I think, has been impeccable. And, you know, they need macroeconomists with technical backgrounds, but... Economists, we are not trained to be able to talk to people. And frankly, <laughs> I think the selection is off. I like to talk to people, but most, many of my peers and some people on the FOMC have really struggled with this because it's just hard. And markets are, they're people, right? They're not technically trained macroeconomists either. I, I understand what you're saying. It's almost like um, for those people who have all the degrees and all the training, they're they're operating in a in a sort of a different plane, maybe uh, not not quite 
attached to reality the way the rest of us uh, live our mm-hmm. lives. It's um, a very intellectual kind of kind of pursuit. I really didn't know uh, some of the things that you're telling me about Jerome Paul uh, Powell. I um, and I have to say that after hearing you, I. I have a better opinion of him. Not that I had a particularly bad opinion of him, <laughs> yeah. but you know, I, I I I think that more so than ever, he does seem to be based on what you're saying, the right man in the right place at the right time. Is is that your feeling? That that's my feeling, and mm-hmm. and honestly, I don't. I um, he's if we land this plane softly. He's not the one in the cockpit. Right? This entire cycle from COVID, the ups and downs, like this has had very little to do with the Fed. And yet they are, they have stepped in at important times. Like in 2021, financial markets were totally seizing up. I mean, the Fed opened every possible lending facility. And when uh, the Silicon Valley Bank failed this year, they stepped in. And that, I mean, that was a scary moment because if that had yeah. spread, we would be in a recession right now, <laughs> but it didn't. So I think there are times with markets and they've held markets hand pretty well. Like there have been no big surprises that the Fed created. And in typical, um, when the Fed tries to do this kind of thing, like bring inflation down, there's a saying that the Fed keeps going until something breaks, right? And they put a lot of pressure on with the interest rates last year. The Silicon Valley Bank, I mean, they did break, but it got contained. So, I just think, um, I mean, they're they're not like in charge of the economy. Like that's sometimes the Fed is seen like it's up there pulling the strings, yeah. and yet they are. You know, he is sitting in first class. He might not be in the cockpit, but you know, I mean, he's <laughs> definitely a part of the what's happening. And uh, but I mean, on some level, uh, I don't really care who gets credit. I mean. Macroeconomists like me will argue about this for a long time. I just want us to get to the other side. Mm-hmm. Right? This is this has been too too much for people. Yeah. What do you know? What do what does the average person need to know about the Fed and how it works, or do we simply not need to know anything, Claudia? Well. One thing that I push back on is the idea the Fed's in control, mm-hmm. right? There is, we have a 25 plus trillion dollar economy. We have millions and millions of workers and business. I mean, this is a very dynamic, I mean, that's good. That's what's great about the U.S. economy. And, and it's important to have the Fed. I mean, the Fed is here. It was created as the lender of last resort, because in the last banking crisis before it was created in the early 1900s, J.P. Morgan, the man, decided which banks got bailed out. And it was like that no person should have that power. So the Fed is here for a reason. And they do good work. But I think sometimes they it comes across like they're the Wizard of Oz or something mm-hmm. behind the curtain. Yeah, that's kind of uh, how it feels. Yeah. They're, my frustration, and I think Jay has advance this in a lot of different ways is they're not big on communication. Like they, and they're not very good at like Jay's pretty, Jay is pretty good at talking to markets, but in general, the fed has this kind of almost fear of saying too much. Mm -hmm. Do it. You know, he's, he's eased it up some 
But uh, is that because they don't want dis- their words to send like the stock market wildly up or down? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I was fascinated with the Fed's culture. I mean, I still am. I, I love Fed stuff, um, but I've never quite cracked that nut. Like, I think it's just a very little C conservative. And, and I, you're right. It's part of it not wanting to uh, upset markets. Like, I would be a horrible Fed chair because I just say <laughs> what I think that would be very disruptive. So but but that has opened up over time. I mean, a really good example of this and Jay pushed this ahead is after every FOMC meeting, they have a press conference and he has a prepared statement and then he takes questions. When Janet Yellen was there, well, she started under Bernanke, they do them every other meeting. And Janet didn't want to do them every meeting. I mean, because it's like prep and all this stuff. Yeah. But Jay was like, nope, we're going to do this every time. And we need him out there every time. So that's, you know, so like I said, he's done, I think, a lot to advance the communication and also show we can talk to people like people. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um I think you'd be a good Fed chair, Claudia. <laughs> You're good at no, talking you. to, to us and explaining things to our audience. Uh, and I appreciate you taking time out of what I know is a very busy day to join us for this. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate it being on your show. Uh, Claudia Sam is a former Federal Reserve economist. She is uh, she found her founded her own consulting company, Sam Consulting. Uh, She also was a White House economist, and uh, we are going to take a break for news uh, at the top of the hour. And then uh, the rest of today, we are going to be talking to Terry Cosgrove about not only um, where abortion stands in the state of Illinois, but what he sees going on across the nation and maybe what might be happening in 2024. And then, as I mentioned before, in the four o'clock hour, we are going to bring in the lovely and talented David Hochberg for a final time as we wrap up 2023. Uh, Send me your questions. We always get to the end of uh, David Hochberg's time and suddenly the questions and comments start pouring in. So think about it right now. 773 Seven six three nine two seven eight seven seven three seven six three WCPT. Send me your questions for David Hochberg. He'll be here in the four o'clock hour. We're going to take a break for news. We'll be back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT eight twenty. For many, many years, Terry Gosgrove steered personal pack here in Illinois. And um, I think he was just about single-handedly responsible for making sure that Illinois was prepared for the fall of Roe v. Wade, something that all uh, many of us told Terry was never going to happen. He didn't have to worry about it, but he did worry about it. And uh, he made other people take precautions. He got uh, the impetus for some old laws to be removed from the books in Illinois so that when the worst, the unforeseeable became reality, we were in pretty good shape here in the state of Illinois. 
Terry joins us now. Hi, Terry. How are you? Thank you, Joan. I'm fine. I'm glad to be back. Um, and thank you for that kind introduction. Although it was a group effort, there are a lot of people involved. And of course, I want to thank you for constantly keeping your listeners up to date on what was going on. But I will say, and I and I say this whenever I talk about my um, tenure at Personal Pack, which was um, 31 years, is that I spent the first 25 of it begging people to understand that Roe was in trouble and that state of elections mattered. And, um, and, uh, so I'm glad I did. Uh, and you know, we're, um, I want to be clear with everyone, even though we have a wonderful governor, general assembly, Cook County board president, and really we have so many wonderful elected officials who are committed to protecting reproductive rights. Um, every election matters because it can all be taken away in the next election, as we know uh, pretty well from recent history. So um, there's no, uh, this is no time for people to get complacent about Illinois, and certainly there are challenges all around the country, which I'm guessing you want to talk about some of them today. <laughs> yes, but you know, you make a you make a really good point. There's no, there is no point in time where we can say to ourselves, oh, well, voted. That was a really great election. Got the people I wanted in office. Now I can go fishing for the next 30 years and stop paying attention. That's not, we have learned the hard way. That's not how democracy works. Right. It's yeah. Election, and unfortunately, it's the, election, it's the one. Yeah. After that. Yeah. You know, and that unfortunately happened when Obama got elected. People thought that, you know, we had changed history forever and it was a new day and mm-hmm. and which it was briefly uh, in the scope of time. And uh, and, you know, the other I mean, the other side of that is the right wing never gives up. They lose an election, they keep working. They win an election, they keep working. And I think that is a lesson that our side has not learned as well. And uh, hopefully what we've seen in the last um, eight or so years will convince people that, uh, that that is not a good strategy and that democracy is fragile. It needs to be safeguarded and protected at every turn. And here we are. And so we have, you know, a job in front of us and, um, and uh, I'm, I, I think every day more and more Americans are going to wake up to are waking up to the real uh, challenges that are being faced by women in this country when it comes to reproductive rights. And, you know, certainly the state of Texas and others are doing a great job of educating the public exactly what their agenda is, because, you know, one of the frustrations that I have that I've had um, all these years is not getting people to understand how absolutely venal and horrific the anti-choice agenda is because they did such a great job of hiding it, um, saying, oh, we believe in exceptions for a woman's health or rape and incest, or, or certainly if a woman will die is a result of carrying a pregnancy to term. And now we see, and, you know, I knew it all along because I saw what they were really about in Springfield, but it was frustrating that the general public did not, was not alarmed earlier about what their real agenda is, which is to ban abortion for all women under all circumstances for all time. And they are not going to stop until they get that. So the sooner that uh, we all wake up and and believe that, because they tell us on all their websites that life begins at con- conception and anything after that is murder, um, if we don't uh, if we don't take that seriously and start responding to it, and fortunately the voters.
governors of Wisconsin and Ohio and Virginia are doing that. And uh, we need to keep that going uh, well into 24 and beyond. And you you pointed out um, how venal they can be in Texas, where we just saw the horrific situation from Ms. Cox, who's for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, this is a woman um, who very much wanted her pregnancy, was told that her fetus had just a horrific, horrific uh, problem that if indeed the baby went to term, the baby would die quickly and painfully. Um, there was just simply uh, nothing good about this situation. And, and also, if she continued to carry the baby, there was an excellent chance that this pregnancy would make her unable to have any children in the future. So if there was ever a situation that you would think would fall under the uh, certain exceptions where, you know, we're doing this, but there are certain exceptions, the idea that this was a woman who wanted to spare herself the emotional distress, spare her fetus the torture that it was facing, and also preserve her ability to have more kids in the future. And yet um, she went before a judge in Texas that said, you know, um, you seem to be the perfect exception. I'm saying you have a right to um, to terminate this pregnancy. And that should have been the end of it. That should have been the end of it. But Ken Paxton... Uh, the corrupt, evil attorney general of Texas. I think, Terry, there was more going on than wanting women to never, ever have any right to terminate a pregnancy. I think Ken Paxton was doing this as a little bit of an F.U. to Democrats and liberals um, because, you know, he was almost by almost by his own party he was thrown out of office and he has been under investigation for all kinds of crimes some of the lawyers who worked for him quit because they said he was taking bribes i mean i think he did this just i don't think he cared a whit about ms cox i think he was doing it because he could Right. And I think part of it, what you're getting to, Joan, here, I think more more of it was um, a payback because it was the anti-abortion extremists in Texas who threatened the other, his Republican colleagues, if they voted to impeach him. So this was certainly a payback to to them for making sure that he didn't get impeached. I think that was really the, you know, at the heart of it, which goes to Politics matters. Elections matter. The fact that the right wingers in Texas were so powerful to uh, to intimidate um, right wing Republican colleagues to back off on him just shows how um, how aggressive they can be. And uh, and we need to take a lesson from them here in Illinois and the rest of the country is that we're not going to beat them unless we uh, we start getting just as aggressive at the state level and making sure that people who want to put the health and lives of women at risk are defeated at the ballot box and are replaced with people who believe in reproductive rights and reproductive justice. I'm uh, talking to Terry Cosgrove. We are going to be continuing our discussion about the state of abortion here 
in the United States and maybe what he sees for 2024 when we come back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Terry Cosgrove, who for many years led personal PAC here in Illinois and was um, a big part of the reason why uh, Illinois modernized the laws on the books relating to abortion. You mentioned Ohio, Terry. Ohio is a state that went for Donald Trump and yet has also twice made it quite clear to its Republicans in the state legislature that a woman's right to have control over her own body should be a part of uh, the laws that all uh, apply to all Ohioans. They voted down the measure to make it difficult for a citizen initiative, which would have... um, prevented any kind of citizen-led abortion uh, measures on the ballot. And then they voted for uh, amending the state constitution to guarantee a woman's right to choose. And this is arguably not so much a purple state as a purpley red state, or some would say a very red state. Why do you think that the Republican Party which, you know, has made this one of their issues for so long. Why can the Republican Party not look at this and pivot? Uh, in fact, in Ohio, every time something happens, the Republican legislators are like, well, we're, we're, we've got a way around that. We don't have to, you know, it doesn't mean that the laws on the books are going to go away. It doesn't mean this, doesn't mean that. Okay. Or you could say, you know what? This is not a winning issue for us. Either we stop talking about it or maybe we moderate our stance. Why is that not happening, Terry? Well, there's two reasons for it. The first one is they don't believe in democracy. So let's just start right there. I mean, if they did, um, they wouldn't have tried to raise the threshold from 50 percent to 60 percent you know, in August, which they failed miserably at, which was a total assault on, on democracy that had, been, that, that had been in the Ohio Constitution for over 100 years. And then they would have listened to the voters on, in the November election, which was a 14-point margin. It wasn't close at all. And the number of independents and Republicans who voted in favor of the referendum was also there. So that's number one. They don't believe in democracy. But, you know, Joan, this goes to, you know, one of the points that I think we need to understand. This is who they are. They don't believe that it is ever, ever um, uh, a matter of personal choice that a woman be able to decide what to do with her body and decide her future and her dreams. And you don't just have to look at at abortion. You can look at the lack of access to family planning. You can look to the fact that they oppose the Equal Rights Amendment. They oppose equal pay. They oppose um they oppose establishing policies that make child care available. Their entire agenda is anti-woman. So it's not, you know, I put the word just in quotes. It's not just abortion. So I think it's important for people to take three steps back and realize that, that this is who they are. They can't re-message themselves out of this because they don't believe that women should have the same aspirations 
uh, dreams and choices as men should. It's that simple. It's not any more complicated than that. So what they have committed themselves to doing as a party and as individuals is to throw democracy out the window, throw fairness out the window, throw the voices of the majority of people out the window, and decide they are just going to rule as autocrats and their very narrow view of the role of women in our society and the role of access to health care. It just doesn't matter, and they're going to do everything they can to get rid of it. So I... I think that answers the question why they don't re-message and they don't change. Now, what they do is, though, what in my experience, and of course we've seen it now with the Texas thing, with the with the Cox incident, with uh, Cornyn and and um, and Cruz, not refusing to comment because all they want their strategy is just to hide from this in hope that most people don't understand or don't care. And unfortunately, they've been pretty successful at 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 that. By uh, by by trying to get people not to focus as much as they want to on on what their agenda is, so so I think that's at the nut of it. There's not it's not a mystery. They they are true believers. They can't re message themselves because this is who they are to the core. Does that make sense? It does make sense, Terry. But I just I. I don't understand it, and I can't wrap my head around it. I mean, I understand that as far as abortion goes, some people uh, just want their particular religious beliefs about abortion to be the law of the land, uh, which is, you know, separation of church and state and pretty unfair. But I agree with what you're saying. I know, I mean, you know, we've heard Republicans say that maybe it's time to repeal no-fault divorce. Um, you oh, know. And and yeah. and this is, but I I I can't I don't understand because you know if maybe if it were no offense to you a bunch of just old white men doing this then I would say well you know it's the last gasp of the patriarchy but their well, wives and daughters um at least at least publicly seem to espouse these same beliefs and I don't understand why people want to turn back the clock. Well, first of all, it is mostly old white men, so let's just establish that. But there are a few uh, women and there are a few uh, people of color who also are on their side, like Tim Scott of South Carolina. And, you know, we can we can add the, you know, there's the Amy Coney Baird, who actually called birth control disgusting. She wrote an article, Anti-Birth Control. So there, it, it's it's not so much the, you know, the, the old white men are leading the charge, but they, in, in in their army are um, are certainly uh, people of the of the female persuasion, um, but I think the, the the core of it though is there is their fundamental belief about the role of women in society. I think that's what that's and it doesn't really matter if it's if it's women or men that are taking that that, that point of view. And even more alarming is. In pursuit of that, uh, they're willing to throw our democracy out the out the window and not listen. You know, back to your original question, not listen to the will of the voters. And they they made it as soon as Ohio referendum passed in November. The Republican Assembly was trying to figure out ways they could they could 
do another referendum and pass bills in the legislature and get a legal opinion to not enforce the constitutional thing. So they're not giving up. I mean, that kind of goes back to way at the beginning of the conversation. They are not going to give up. They're not going to accept defeat. They're not going. And it's the same. I mean, I'm I don't want to get off too much off the subject, but I will for a second here. Um, I'm working with an organization called Project 50, which is to export the personal PAC model uh, to other states. And and the reason why that's important is because um, for for so many Democrats, and listen, I I I believe first and foremost you win elections, and then and then that's when you get your policy made. I believe winners make policy, losers make noise. So uh-huh. nothing against people that, that are working hard to win elections, but I did that for years. But the problem is the right wingers stay behind and control the, uh, you know, and stay on the ground and put their stakes down and and run and basically run the place. So, for example, in Kansas, they beat back at, at uh, a referendum uh, to amend the Kansas Constitution that said abortion should be illegal. The Kansas um, State Assembly has done nothing but pass anti-abortion bills. In Ohio, for example, they are going to have in their state constitution. Now, whether the Republicans will undo it is another story, but they have that the right to an abortion as well as fertility treatments and other things um, are part of the law on the land. But the, Ohio has every single abortion restriction imaginable. Um, waiting periods, misinformed consent, uh, parental notice, no Medicaid funding. So even though when we go in and we win elections and we win these referendums, if we don't have an organized 365-day effort in these states to counter the organizing that's going on year-round on the other side, we're really we're, we're not going to we're not going to make the long term um, impact and make the long-term changes that we need to make uh, in order to, uh, to um, I hesitate to wor- use the word, settle this issue, because it's certainly not going to happen in my lifetime, but hopefully long after I'm gone, it will be settled in our favor. But that's the, you know, that's the, that's what's at issue here. We need to win elections, and then we need to hold elected officials accountable for their actions after they get elected. And that's never going to change. No, if, as long as we call ourselves a democracy, if we if we want to be something else, uh, which there's a lot of people in this country are looking forward to the day when we don't have elections and there we have an autocracy, and that may well happen in 2024. Then, uh, then, then that's what it's going to be. But if you believe in democracy, this is what we have to do. Yeah. Um, we need to. We're coming up on another break here, Terry. But when we come back. I'd like to ask you about the op-ed Jennifer Rubin uh, published in the Washington Post today. Um, She talked about abortion and the various ballot measures that are on the ballots in certain states. And she thinks that abortion is one of Democrats' big advantages for 2024. And I know that um, we've already seen... Uh, a huge increase in the turnout of younger voters, which, frankly, has always been something, as I've covered election night after election night after election night, I've always bemoaned the fact that it seemed like the younger voters 
um, just didn't seem to, I don't know, they just didn't care, didn't seem to feel their votes mattered. Even when there was a report not all that long ago that if all the millennium millennials, if all the millennials came and supported a certain candidate or a certain policy, they would virtually decide everything in this country because there's so many of them. Anyway, when Terry Cosgrove and I come right back after this, we're going to talk about this idea that somehow uh, the abortion issue could potentially be a big winner for Dems in 2024. We'll be right back. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm talking to Terry Cosgrove. He led personal PAC here in Illinois, and now he's involved with... um, a group called Project 50, kind of trying to recreate that same work in other states. There was an opinion piece published by Jennifer Rubin in the Washington Post today, and the title of it is Democrats 2024 Advantage, Abortion Ballot Measures in Key States. Um, do you believe that this is an issue that is going to turn out voters, especially young ones like never before? Uh, Joan, I believe that the abortion issue is going to save our democracy. Uh, because um, it is going to motivate voters so much, and you know we don't we already have the empirical evidence of that in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, which I was involved with tangentially as a volunteer, uh, but spent a lot of time working with them and and up in the in Wisconsin is the the turnout in uh, in Dane County, where the University of Wisconsin is shattered all records and um, Biden got 75% of the vote uh, in the 2022 election, I'm sorry, in the 2020 election, and Janet Proasayich got 89% of the vote with a higher turnout. And the same thing happened in Ohio around the university uh, precinct. So I think there is already a motivation. Um, and um, But it's not going to happen by magic. There has to be an investment in communicating with uh, with young voters about what's at stake and making sure that there are um, that there are um, colleagues of theirs that are communicating with them about the importance of the election and the important of the the importance of the issue. So, yes, uh, going back to my original statement, I think the abortion issue is going to uh, save our democracy. And what I'm really frustrated about is um, I subscribed to uh, to Jennifer Rubin, and while we were on break, I went through all of my emails and my and my trash and didn't find it. So um, I, I have a bone to pick with Jennifer that I missed it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> she she goes to she it's um she's quoting a lot of numbers, a lot of statistics, right? And, and uh, Tufts University research and polling and um and 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 so forth and so on. But you know. Terry, I always said that my generation, when when we were young, we were very involved politically because our friends were going to Vietnam and we were sitting around waiting for our high school buddies to find out what their number was. And, you know, this was after, you know, you could get the college deferment when that went away. 
And I was in was, the first lottery, and my number was 32, and I still remember driving oh in the boy. car with my dad when it was announced over the radio. So I, I'm fully aware of that <laughs> Did you get called up? 32 is pretty low. Uh, no, no. I did, you know, anything under 150 was like uh, you got called up, but there, it, there was a very uh, strange uh, circumstance under which I wasn't. But it's not worth going on into uh, with, the, with the call. But, no, I was in the first lottery. Yeah, yeah. So, but but that uh, was but, we were motivated because it affected us, our lives, our friends, and and so we, you know, got involved and protested. And but then, for so many young people after us, there didn't seem to be anything that affected them directly. And I can't tell you how many young people I would hear say, oh, my vote doesn't matter. I don't really really care about politics. You know, it doesn't really make any difference to my life one way or the other. And then the Supreme Court uh, knocked down Roe v. Wade and took away a right that they had lived their whole lives with. And I think this was their Vietnam yeah, yeah, it was a, it was definitely a um, a gut punch um, to, and also, I mean, it's not just um, it, it, again. I do, I put the word just in quotes. I mean, we're talking. It's uh, abortion is part of a constellation of issues that I think young people should and could be uh, concerned about. I mean, we now know that the number one cause of death uh, for young people is gun is gun violence. Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly don't have to look very far for the evidence about the the uh, coming uh, global climate disaster uh, that is unfolding in front of our eyes every single day, not to mention the threat to democracy. So I think the there's a constellation of issues that uh, that young people need to be very, very concerned about uh, in, over the next you know, year, two years, and also to understand that Clarence Thomas and the right wingers on the court want to revisit the Griswold, the Griswold case on birth control, revisit the case on marriage equality, and revisit a lot of other things that um, that people take for granted, like our civil rights. You know, Joan and I, I don't want to be overly dramatic about this, but I think it's really important for every single one of your listeners on this show to understand when Donald Trump came out and said that he was going to shut down media that disagreed with him, your show could be shut down after next November as a, um, under his, uh, under his autocracy and people like you, journalists like you who have opinion shows like yours could end up going to jail. So everyone listening to this program understand what we're talking about with this November, 2024 election. We are talking about, you know, for, for every election, we say this is the most important Mm -hmm. election of our lifetime. We said it in 2020, we said it in 2016, except we've never said this is the most important election of our lifetime, and it may be our last election. Yeah, That's, that's the difference here. That is, that really is the terrifying. Difference. Yes, that we that I have never in every election that I've ever worked on where we have all said this is the most important election. 
because of the Supreme Court, because of, of, of a war. Uh, uh, it doesn't matter what it is, but never in our entire, at least in my life. Now, if you want to disagree with me, go ahead. But I never once said to myself or said to another human being, this is the most important election of our lifetime, and it could be our last election. Well, because along those lines, I agree with you about that's what he's going to do to journalism. He said publicly yeah. that NBC, oh, totally. he was going to he was going to weaponize his Department of Justice to charge NBC and MSNBC with treason. I know. And that's what I'm saying. If that, if listen, if MSNBC and NBC are on the line, what's going to happen to WCPT? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. uh, I think it, Trump will personally tear down your tower. Uh, <laughs> so, so I no seriously, I know, I know I'm being over. Um, but no, so I think that's something else that, that, you know, we, We've come to, and you know, it's not just young people. It's it's everyone, uh, not everyone, but but too many people take our democracy for uh, for granted, and it is really threatened right now. And it's about what books you read, it's about what movies you go to, what radio programs you listen to, and if our country goes. Uh, to you know, falls to an autocracy. It's going to it's going to ripple effect all around the world, and we are really looking for to a very very dark period of history, like none of us alive have ever known. You know, and the other thing I want to say about young people, I I get you know I travel in circles of older people our age, and you know, there's always complaining about all they do is listen, to, you know, is watch TikTok and you know on social media and everything. And I remind people to be cautious about what they say about young people because 90% of the people that got off the boats at Normandy and saved the world from from Adolf Hitler and fascism were under the age of 21. Mm. I'm going to say that again. 90% of the people who stormed the beaches at Normandy and saved our world from fascism were under the age of 21. And this past May, I was in South Africa and went to the apartheid museum and then uh, did uh, was able, very fortunate, to have a, a tour of Nelson Mandela's house in Soweto in the neighborhood. And I had no idea that the, the first uprising against apartheid was 23 high school students who were all gunned down. Oh. Uh, but the very first standing up against apartheid. So, so young people have always been, and I feel that way, you know, you were talking about the whole Vietnam era, you know, we were young then and our, and we led the, you know, we led a lot of the changes that came about in the, in the sixties and seventies, um, wrote, the, the establishment of Roe v. Wade and Griswold establishing birth control are all part of that legacy that we had. And so I, I hope when the, if the information is presented to young people, as I just described, everything that's, that's at, at stake here in this election, that they will respond in enormous numbers and, um, and make sure that Donald Trump is not the next president. Because I never thought I'd say ever disagree, ever agree with uh, Liz Cheney about anything. But here we go. Um, it's really saving our democracy is the only issue that matters. And I know people um, 
are upset. You know, we we don't like when our elected officials aren't perfect, and uh, and certainly Biden, you know, falls into that category. But it's really important that people understand what's at stake here, and whatever issue you care about, whether it's labor rights, whether it's reproductive rights, whether it's gay rights, whether it's the environment, whether it's gun safety. If Donald Trump is reelected, every issue you care about will immeasurably be worse off in his presidency. He will destroy any um, action on climate. He will uh, he um, he will work to undermine and destroy workers' rights, gay rights, reproductive rights, whatever the issue is that you care about. Um, it is going to be in horrible hands and suffer greatly. Uh, voting rights, no matter what it is. Uh, the, the right to read books and the magazines and go to the movies you want to. So I think it's important for people to realize that, that that's our choice. That, yeah. that That's really our only choice on Election Day is are we going to make sure that this madman uh, does not assume the highest office in the land and who has told us exactly what he's going to do, shut down the press, be uh, be an autocrat, and um, and round up his political enemies. What what? What else do people need to know? Yeah. Yeah. And end our democracy. As a person of a certain older demographic, I really feel like I and my generation have let young people down. I really Mm -hmm. feel like we let this whole thing get away from us. We took our eye off the ball. And I... I don't know how other people feel or how they did it, but I was a lazy voter. Oh, I voted in every election. I would never miss an election. But between elections, it was like I went to sleep. I never checked to see how the people I voted for were voting, what bills they were sponsoring. I just assumed that everything would take care of itself. And, you know, I don't know whether I was just lazy or naive. I don't know what it was, but I really feel... Like I have done the younger generations a real disservice. And sadly, I probably won't live long enough to make it up to them, though I'm going to try. Right, right. Well, I, you know, Joan, I, 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 I don't think you can be held personally responsible for everything. But, <laughs> but I will, I, I, you, you definitely hit on a point, and it goes back to my original point that democracy is not a, you know, it's not written in stone. It doesn't last forever. It's very, very fragile. It's been for a, practically a nanosecond of human history as it existed. It's a great experiment, and I think that what happened, you know, and all of us did this, is um, is we just assumed that it that it was resilient enough that it would carry on. There, there would always be another election, that, that the arc of justice uh, um, would bend, you know, in the correct direction. And we never, I, I think the mistake that we, that we all made and um, I, is just that we never dreamed that the backlash to everything that we thought was fair and, and, and just like voting rights, like reproductive rights, like gay rights, like labor rights, that the backlash would ever be as fierce as it was. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's, and, 
and I think that's I, I think that's part of it. I you know we certainly we can you know we can look back and say we should have done X Y and Z, but I think that was part of it that we you know we felt like we got we worked really hard. Now I was in a position where it was my wife's work and I was getting paid to do it, so I can't really turn to other people and say where were you? I mean I was very very fortunate enough that this has been my uh, my personal and professional mission. You know, rolled into one. Um, so, uh, but I think I think that was part of it. I just think people. I think it was complacency that we just thought. You know, we we're going to roll on. We we're going to solve all. The, I mean, when you look at the legacy of the Voting Rights Act, of the EPA, of Roe v. Wade, of marriage equality, there was every reason to believe that uh, we were starting to take um, seriously, you know, the the, uh, the challenges that, that climate uh, disasters were posing. And I, I, you know, if someone would have asked me or told me 30 years ago that everything we worked for was all of a sudden going to be unraveled uh, in, a, in a quick period of time, I don't know that I would have believed it. Mm. I mean, who would have thought that the Voting Rights Act would be completely obliterated? I mean, that's what it is right yes, now. And that we would have to yeah. go back and redo something that happened in the 60s. And um, I, frankly, even you, though you were warning people to be cautious, even after the leak in February that showed that they were getting ready to overturn Roe v. Wade, I still couldn't fully believe it. I kept thinking cooler heads will prevail. It's just a draft. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm They'll laughing. modify it. Yeah. yeah, I got, in fact, it's, I'm, I'm only laughing because I remember that whole period so well because the, I would, you know, like I said, for my first 25 years at Personal Bank, I was begging people to understand that Roe was in trouble. And it, and I did it as an insurance policy, too, because I figured, okay, if we get excited and we protect it, we do everything we can to protect it, and it doesn't get overthrown, um, oh, good, we did a good thing. But if we ignored it and the worst thing happened, it got overturned, we're all going to kick ourselves. So that, so that was kind of my approach to it. But when the leaked opinion came out, I, I st- when people came up to me and said, Terry, do you really think they're going to do it? I go, have you read the leaked opinion? Uh-huh. I mean, they're coming right out and telling you that that they're going to do it. And they leaked it to make sure that we knew. You know, mm-hmm. That was the whole strategy. They didn't want anyone to change their mind on the court, you know, because yeah. now we know about as it, as all the drama to, that went on. It wasn't, yeah. a, it wasn't a warning to those of us opposed it was yeah. a warning to those who were in favor. Right, right. That 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 it could it may not happen. So get your act together. And I know it was uh, it was maddening. Uh, and then and then you know what I will say though. I it's I I want to say it's like we never learned the lesson. Now I have people that are telling me, "Oh, Terry, they're never going to take away birth control." Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's uh-huh. like I want to say go. Amy Coney Barrett called birth control disgusting and the same thing as an abortion. Clarence Thomas, in his opinion, overturning Roe v. Wade, said that the court should revisit Griswold, which is the case that established birth control, access to birth control in the United States, and marriage equality. If they tell you what they're thinking of doing, in my 
personal perspective on life, you should believe people when they tell you that. If someone put, I mean, I don't know what it, so now I feel, oh, they they would never do that. That's crazy. You know, abortion was one thing, but they would never, I know. And I'm just like, okay, okay, fine. Uh, Because they, you know, they've already defunded um, birth control out of the federal budget and, and, and uh, have shut down, you know, have done everything they can to defund Planned Parenthood and take away access, uh, not to mention to prenatal care with the WIC program. Look, at they're trying to strip mm-hmm. all this money out of the women infant feeding program of the federal budget. Uh, you know, we could go on for an hour mm-hmm. about the hypocrisy, but um, no. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're they're raring to go, and it's too bad. So I feel if we if we make sure that young people, back to your original question, understand what's at stake with all of this, and in our in our, uh, we can get them as well as the entire voting public. Uh, you know, part of the reason why these referendums have passed so overwhelmingly in Janet Provost it's won so overwhelmingly in Wisconsin is. There, there's a wide swath of Republicans who believe in reproductive rights, who believe in the right to privacy. Uh, and they went out and voted for those referendums. Now, of course, the question is, um, will they come out now and, and continue to vote for right-wing Republicans for, for president and local office? Or um, So it sounds like Jennifer Rubin was talking about the Arizona, Montana reference. Mm-hmm. I know Montana, Arizona, I don't know all the states of the swing states that have, oh, Nevada. Nevada has a referendum, too. So I think in those states that is going to be very, very helpful to Biden as well as the Senate candidates. You know, there's an important Senate race in Montana, Nevada, and Arizona. Um, I don't, I off the top of my head, I, I know there's, a, I know Florida has one, but there's not an important uh, uh, Senate race going on there. They, they don't have a Senate race. So, Terry, yeah, let's but, take and a it could break. also help. We've got to take a break. And uh, when we come back, I want you to prognosticate for 2024. (laughs) Terry Cosgrove and I'll be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Terry Cosgrove, who uh, is now with a group called Project 50, bringing sort of the same kinds of efforts that he led uh, in personal pack to the rest of the country. I uh, said to him before the break that I was going to ask him to look ahead to 2024 and tell us when it comes to a woman's right to choose and other issues and rights that uh, are up for grabs. What what do you see, Terry? Make your well, uh, my, my crystal ball is very foggy right now, okay. and I'm waving my hands over it, and it's <laughs> not helping. But but what I will tell you, Joan, is, um, I and I'm forgetting the person's name who wrote an article about this, but, you know, whenever we read every poll, we see margin of error, which mm-hmm. is three, four points either way. And uh, so this election is going to come down to very few votes like the last few presidential elections is. So it's not the margin of error that's going to decide this election. It's the margin of effort. And what that means 
that is the effort that all of us put in over the next 10 months to make sure that we win in 2024. And what does that mean? That means all of us figuring out what we can do. And what I'm telling people is get up every single day and decide the one thing that you can do uh, to help make sure that we win this election in 2024. And because and, I don't want people to feel disheartened by the discussion we've had today. The future is still in our hands. We still have a democracy. It may be fragile, but we still have it. So we have a responsibility to think every single day when we get up, what's the one thing I can do for 10 minutes or one hour or whatever, depending on your day, to help advance the goals of this upcoming election? Is that contacting um, three people that you might know in Arizona to make sure they're registered to vote? Does that mean making a contribution? Does that mean when the weather gets nicer in the spring and the fall, going door to door for a candidate for state rep or state senate? And uh, I probably get shot by a bunch of my Illinois political friends going to Kenosha, which is only an hour (laughs) ride. That's what I did during the Supreme Court race and go door to door in, in Kenosha. It's a very important area of Wisconsin and to make sure that that Wisconsin uh, turns out. So I think that's what we need to focus on is the margin of effort. What can each of us do um, supporting an organization, uh, helping people register to vote, uh, communicating with everyone you know about the election, uh, about what's at stake, uh, sending a link to Joan Esposito's show to everyone on your email list, maybe. There's something that all of us can do every single day. So that's the way I would put it. The future is in our hands. We have not lost the 2024 election. We have a very good chance of winning it, but we're not going to win it if everyone doesn't pull their weight, and that's what we really need to happen. So I hope that answers your question. It does, and I say that, and in trying to get people who've never been active to be active, I always remind people that there are lots of things you can do from the comfort of your own home. You know, Absolutely. You, can, you can write postcards. You can mm-hmm. fill out witness slips, which you can do online in about two minutes for an issue you believe in and you want to make sure that it becomes enacted into law or maybe not enacted into law. There is so much you can do. It's not all like, well, if you're not willing to travel to Wisconsin and knock on doors, right. you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Right. There's so yeah. much. And it has gotten very, very easy to get postcards sent to you. You fill them out with a list. You send them back. You can do text banking, phone banking from your home. You will get a list of you can so many organizations, progressive organizations are doing this. And if you're intimidated, they train you on how to do it. And it feels really good. You can take an hour of your time in the late afternoon or evening and call the 20 people they sent you on the list and and talk to them about the election to do postcards, uh, to do text banking. Um, There's all kinds of things you can do to help because we know uh, we have data when voters are contacted and, and spoken to and given information um, that really increases uh, the level of participation in the elections, and mm-hmm. that's what we need. We are the majority. We just need our side to come out in enough numbers to win, yeah. and that's really it. It's not. A, it's really not about persuasion. I mean, the, the you know the sickening part about this, the reproductive rights issue and gun violence is the vast majority of people are on our side on this. So it's really motivating 
um, our, um, you know, our people who agree with us to come out and vote for the right candidates. Terry, so it is a- always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining our conversation today. I really appreciate it. No problem. Anytime, Joan. Take care. You too. We're going to break for news and be back with David Hochberg right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. We are happy to be joined by the lovely David Hochberg. He is here to answer your questions. I have I have been getting a number of texts for David. There's also some topics we want to try to hit. And um, let's open the phone lines, 773-763-9278. If you would like to speak to young Mr. Hochberg in person, uh, feel free to give us a call. David, how are you today? I'm good. I, I, I appreciate your definition of young. Um, my birthday is next Monday, so I, I appreciate Happy the thought. Happy birthday to you. Yeah, it's very kind. Monday the 25th, you're Jesus. born on Christmas. Yeah, another Jew born on Christmas. Go figure <laughs> that. What a great present yep. for your mom and dad. Oh, yeah. yeah Chinese food and a movie. That's, uh, that's been the standard uh only thing that's been open. Well, movies now, there's no more. You know, if you can find a movie theater. So, um, yeah. yeah, thank God for Chinese food. So what's going on? Okay, let's uh, let's get to some of these questions. Um, okay, I'm going to start with the shorter ones. <laughs> Please okay. ask David if he, think, if he thinks it's a buyer's or seller's market for condos. Wow, that's a great question. It depends where you're, what location you're talking about. I could tell you in the city right now, the there's still a weakness in the Chicago condo market, especially the high end market that starts with uh, that has two commas in it, right? That's at least one million dollars. Um, the pending um, re reorganization of the Chicago Transfer Tech taxed by the mayor of Chicago, which is coming up for referendum in, I believe, March, which I am completely against. I think it's a, a ridiculous notion of completely transforming the Chicago transfer tax. I, I'm all for helping the homeless, but um, you know, when you spend only 15% of the money available and you just go to completely blow up something without even proving to the taxpayers that your plans work is kind of ridiculous. So I think that's freaked out a lot of people in the upper end market. There's a lot of condos on the market. Um, so in the in the city, we still see a, a weakness in the Chicago condo market. Out in the burbs, the condo markets, we still have a lack of inventory. So those are it's still a fluid market out in the suburbs. So it depends really? where you're at on the condo market. Yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of listeners are downsizing what we're seeing. Uh, go, I just talked to a listener Friday. Um, she wants to sell her $600,000 home to her son. Uh, her and her husband already purchased a, a three dollars $400,000 condo in, um, in a nice community and in, in, in a downtown suburb, which is close to uh, transportation to get downtown and close to every, all the restaurants they want to be close to. It's a maintenance-free community, and they want to sell their home to their son. Yeah, so... 
Um, it's a fluid market out in the suburbs. Uh, it's it's a little stagnant market in the city. Um, this this is a complete wild tangent here, but maybe you can answer this for me. I know that, like out in Arizona, where one of my cousins goes for the winter, they have these communities that were planned for people 50 and older. You're not, you can't live there full time unless you're at least 50 years old. And the whole point of these communities was so that because they don't have to support schools, they can have lower property taxes. I was uh, (laughs) driving way out in the, uh, in the far, far suburbs, like the Huntley, Illinois area last week. And I saw a Del Webb Sun City. Is that yeah. the is that the same thing? Is that um, a fifty and older sort of development? And can they yes. Yes. can they then say, well, you don't the property taxes are going to be a lot lower because there aren't going to be any schools here? Yeah, that's that's kind of not true. Um, so I didn't think it would work. What about in Huntley? What's that? I didn't think that would be the work that would work here. No, no, it, it, there there are communities that have an age limit to get in, right? It, it's as long as you're not discriminated against race, religion, uh, ethnicity, um, disability, or anything like that, they can set a minimum because it is a, it is an association and they can have requirements based upon age in order for you to live there. So that's number one. My, my in-laws live in one out Mundelein. There's a, a Dell web out, out, uh, out Mundelein as well. They love it. I mean, ton of, Ton of um, ton of experienced homeowners, their own age. They've got Bocce, they've got uh, Mahjong, they've got uh, Canasta, they've got all the stuff. They got bowling leagues, and and uh, it's like it's like summer camp out there for my in laws. They love it. My father in law loves it more than my mother in law, and everybody in the community knows each other. So, you could get, are there communities that 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 set certain ages? Yes, hundred percent legal as long as you don't discriminate against. Uh, race, religion, and a bunch of other d- different uh, fair housing categories, okay, which I know we're going to get to l- a little later with the um, Navy Federal Credit Union got their hand caught in the cookie jar for doing stupid things. But um, about the schools, um, Huntley has high schools. Yeah. Um, Huntley has great schools. Mundelein has high schools. Mundelein has great schools. The challenge is here in Illinois, the real estate taxes are ridiculously high, and I keep, and I know firsthand that my in-laws' taxes out in Mundelein are are pretty high, right? And they're in their upper seventies and and early eighties. So it's got nothing to do with the real estate taxes of of the community you live in. It, it has to do with the community you live in and what the 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 real estate taxes go to cover. Unfortunately, here in Illinois. Um, a lot of the real estate taxes goes to cover the local schools and the townships and the and the um, you know the fire and police. You got to cover. You got to take care of those guys and gals. If you want your you want public safety, right? It goes to a, a bunch of different things. But you know, unfortunately, here in Illinois, our real estate taxes are ridiculously high, and there's no help or or um, or plan in sight to lower those in the future. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, I I wanted somebody to explain that to me a little bit better. Okay, um, moving on. Okay, you might need a paper and pencil for this one, or or maybe not. Um, I worked for 60 years, and Social Security, my sole income, is $1,500 a month. 
The annual adjustment is small and does not include the cost of food or utilities. I get poorer each year and rely on help yeah. from a food pantry. And then talks about how the food pantry is not always optimal. Um, Biden is doing the best he can, but Republicans must cooperate to reform Social Security to take into account the cost of food along with dental and vision care. Um, do you think this isn't so much a question for you, but but David, I know that that you pay attention to what's going on in the news. And I worry that people like this don't necessarily understand that not only do Republicans not want to uh, increase the cost of living raises for Social Security, they want to either privatize or completely sunset this particular program. What, you know, yeah, is there a, anything this person I, can do other than going back to work? Well, I'm not a Social Security expert, right? Um, mm. I know that there's been a huge, inc- there was a, a nice bump in the cost of living increase for Social Security recipients uh, this past year in 2023. I don't know what it's going to be in 2024, but I know that they hadn't received any type of major sustainable uh, COLA adjust cost of living adjustments prior to this past year. I can tell you just from experience that the number of experienced homeowners that we're dealing with, I don't like using elderly or old, right? I just I just call experienced I call homeowners. myself an old fart. You can probably use that. Oh, okay, okay, well, that's, that's, that's suitable for you. So, um, <laughs> But other, other listeners might not be so keen to that, and I don't want to upset anybody or try my best to upset as little people, uh, a, a small amount of people as possible. Uh, and I love little people as well. So if you... Um, if if you're an experienced home, I don't know if this if this listener who, s- who sent in the text, great text, thank you, uh, owns a home or not. But I'm telling you from firsthand experience that the number of listeners we're getting calls from who have outlived their assets, uh, who didn't think they'd live long enough to, and they thought they had enough, didn't think uh, they'd live long enough you, to run out of money, and they have, um, and that are living off of Social Security, fifteen hundred bucks, pretty tough. Even though I just saw gas prices here in Northbrook are down to two ninety five, I filled up at Costco for two eighty five today. So you know we're back in the twos. That made me feel a little better. Uh, but you know fifteen hundred dollars doesn't go a long way when when you're talking about housing and heat and fuel and all that stuff. I will tell you that um, to contact Comed dot com um, for all money saving opportunity uh, for low to moderate income. They have amazing. Uh, uh, opportunities out there for listeners who are renters and homeowners that want to save money this winter and next summer uh, on their energy bills. Comed.com. Uh, check out. Check that out. Uh, what about got a, a number if you great, say if this person owns their own home, would this I'll person? I'll get into that. Yeah, with the reverse okay. mortgage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to cover all that prior to jumping into the reverse mortgage. If this and this listener owns their own home and they have a lot of equity in their own home, or if they have a mortgage that part of that fifteen hundred dollars is going to, a reverse mortgage is an amazing uh, tool. We our our reverse mortgage inflow of inquiries has has tripled over the past one hundred and twenty days because we were getting calls from experienced homeowners that were running out of money. And I just I just started dropping ads saying, hey, please call us before you mm-hmm. run out of money or please call us. Because essentially what a reverse mortgage does, you know, just to 
give the micro uh, definition here. If you have a mortgage and you qualify for it, if you qualify for EA reverse mortgage and there's a mortgage against your home, it would uh, it would take out the current mortgage and would, would defer the mortgage payment. There is a mortgage payment that's associated, but the payment's deferred. Okay, so that money that you have going out towards the mortgage payment today is now sitting in your bank account that you could use to survive. Okay, mm-hmm. it also enables you if you have a lot more equity than what you owe, or if you don't owe anything on the home, you could use that money that you qualify for a reverse mortgage to do whatever you want to do. Okay, so if you want to use that money to pay your real estate taxes and your homeowners insurance, great. If you want to use that money to make your home safer, getting in and out of the tub or transitioning with the stair lift, going up the stairs or putting handrails in or putting no slip. Um, floors in your house, great. Do you want to use that money to bring in a health care provider uh, to make sure that you're getting out of bed safely and, and, and you can help you get dressed and make your meals and tidy up your house and take your meds and get you back upstairs to bed later in the night? Great. I mean, it's your money tax-free that you could do anything with. So I don't know if this texter um, – was a homeowner or not, but if that home, if she is or he is, I'd love to have the opportunity to talk to them about the benefits of reverse mortgage to see if it is an option for them. And I guarantee you it's an option for everybody. So you you, you have to look at it. I mean, you have to look at it. it. It's, it's something there that takes the stress off of your finances. And if you've outlived your assets and any good financial planner that's worth his or her weight, and the salt weight, I don't know what that term is, it's weight and salt, <laughs> will tell you that a, a, a reverse mortgage enables you to use your equity in your home and not touch your assets that they could then keep in play for you in an annuity in some type of income-producing vehicle. It's better for you to tap out the equity of your home tax-free and use that up first before tapping into your retirement savings. I'm not a certified financial planner, but I said talk to your financial planners and ask them. And if they don't tell you that a reverse mortgage is a viable option, find a new financial planner because that financial planner is not giving you good advice. David, we need to take a break. In my humble David professional answering uh, listener questions. I'm going to go back to the text line and see what else is there. Uh, I already have another half dozen questions for us to get to. We're going to get right to it right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. David Hochberg is here answering your questions. This question comes from Sue. David, I've heard you speaking of settling credit card balances for divorcees who acquired balances as part of the settlement. How does this work, and is there a time limit to file? Thank you. That's uh, a great question. So we're going into divorce season um, in another thirty, another fourteen days. January first is the official start of divorce season and bankruptcy season. So how does it work? It works like this. You call up your credit card company. You tell them that you just went through a hardship, divorce. You like, and you were left with this debt, and you have limited means to pay off that debt, and you'd like to work out the best type of um, repayment that that you can that you could afford. 
And typically, it's Monty Hall, let's make a deal. For everybody that's over 50, you should know who Monty Hall, let's make a deal is. <laughs> um, and, and you try to cut your best deal with the with the collection agencies. What your listeners have to understand is, is that the creditors, okay, David Hochberg, LLC, has a debt with, with Joan. Okay, Joan Esposito owes me $1,000. Okay, I don't want to go after Joan. I don't got the patience or the time. I'd rather sell that debt to ABC Collection Company for $500 in this example. So I'm willing to take 500 of your debt, Joan, right, just to get you off of my books. Okay, that's how it works. Now, ABC Collection Company has got $1,000 debt on their hands, right? So they're going to go as hard as they can against that against that client that used to be my client as David Hochberg LLC. It's now ABC Collection Company's uh, client. So they're going to charge you like a ram, like, like you know, a, a ram in heat to try to get as much money out of you as possible. What they don't, what, what most of the consumers don't know is, is that they bought that for pennies on the dollar. They didn't buy the entire debt. Okay, so the consumer thinks, oh, my God, I now owe ABC or ABC Collection Company a G-note. No, you can negotiate that down as best as you can for for your financial well-purpose. And it's going to get to a point where they know what their cutoff point is, the collection company. Okay, mm-hmm. and the person on the phone typically is getting a commission based upon how much they can get above or and beyond oh. what the bottom number is. It's a business. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being negative on the collection company. It, it, it's a business. Okay, they bought debt, they took the risk for you know from somebody else, and now it's your job as a consumer to pay as little of that debt back. And, 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 and the key is, is that once you pay it back, you get something in writing from the collection company to cover your rear end that states that that debt, whatever the debt is, originally from David Hochberg LLC, has been satisfied. Okay, now you've got a burn, right? You've got a third-degree burn going on there because you didn't pay that bill and your credit's getting kind of dinged for it. As soon as you satisfy that collection any way, shape, or form, Okay, your 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 credit starts getting better and that and that burn starts healing. Right. So that's how you do it. You just go to them. There's a phone number on all these collections. And if you don't know who it is, just go to annual credit report. Be careful how you type that in because it takes you to some funky websites. Annual credit report. If you miss an N uh, annual credit report dot com and type in your your um, all your information. Don't pay the money to get your credit scores. It's all garbage. Just just get just go there, check it out to see who's reporting what against you. And if somebody's coming after you that's not on there, then file a dispute. And then the credit agencies, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion have 30 days to um, do an investigation. And if that collector coming after you is not legit, then they'll bounce it off of your credit report. That's okay. how it works. Hopefully I answered your listener's question. Got another one for you. John from northern Indiana. My mortgage was sold to another servicer. I have not heard of this before. Or no, they haven't heard of the servicer. Not that they haven't heard of the practice. My mortgage was yeah. my mortgage was sold to another servicer I hadn't heard of before. It dropped my credit score twenty eight points when my original servicer closed the loan. When the new servicer opens up the loan, will my credit recover? Hmm. I, I never heard of. A credit score going down. This is the first in 23 years that a credit score decrease 
because of a transfer of the loan. It might just be a, a tweener situation where it's not reporting um, while it's being transferred, and then when it be it's back when it's onboarded and it's on the grid of the new lender or the new servicer that uh, that the credit scores come back. It, it it shouldn't hurt you. I've never heard of it hurting a listener or borrower with a transfer. So hopefully when the, um, until now, uh, so thank you, Texter, for stumping me here. So the, hopefully when it gets onboarded, it, you know, that's the official term, and it shows up on the radar screen of the new lender, your your lost credit score, your lost points will be, um, will be reflected back onto, in a positive way, onto your credit scores. That's okay. a good one. That's a new one. That's no. that's a new one for you. It's you know we should yeah, maybe re- rename this segment. Let's stump stump David. David. Yeah. Okay. Well, we yeah, have um, you know I don't know if we we're even going to get to the topics we want to talk about uh, because we still have like half a dozen more people texting yeah, in with questions. Uh, for David Hochberg. Well, we are going to keep going, but we do have to take uh, a break here. And uh, David Hochberg and I will be back right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. David Hochberg is here to answer your questions. Um, quick question from one person who texted in. Why don't some mortgagees escrow taxes and insurance? TF, TCF Bank was like this. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, so so some, okay, so escrowing taxes and insurance, let me cover that first. Escrowing taxes and insurance means that you pay your taxes and insurance in with your mortgage payment. Some people like that for, for budgetary reasons. They know that. When they write their their monthly mortgage check, it covers their principal interest, taxes, and insurance. Unless your taxes or insurance goes up, your payment will stay the same. And if you live in Cook County or anywhere in Illinois, you have experienced higher real estate taxes. So you usually get a letter from your servicer, which is the company you write your mortgage payment to, that says, oh, by the way, um, your escrow balance is short by $1,000, for example, right? You could either pay us... You can either submit a check for a thousand bucks with with your next payment, or we could adjust your payment by eighty three dollars a month is a thousand dollars a year, right? We could either mm-hmm. increase it by eighty three dollars a month over the next twelve months, and then after you get caught up, we're good. Or you could send in a check for a thousand bucks. So that's what escrowing is. Why do some lenders require it and some lenders don't? Well, you've got the option if you take out an FHA loan. You don't have the option of waiving your taxes and insurance. You're forced to. FHA requires you to do that. If you have a conventional loan under 80% loan to value, you can opt out of when you set up the loan, not when you're in the loan, but when you set up the loan, you can decide whether you want to escrow your taxes or pay them on your own. Now, I don't escrow my taxes because I think Cook County is a complete disaster. You just look at all of the, um, you know, what what Tony Preckwinkle and her band of, 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 of knuckleheads have done to this county, right? They can't even get tax bills out on time. So I'm not giving Cook County an extra penny until they need it, until the bill comes out, okay? So I, I escrow myself. 
I self-escrow. So when the real estate tax bill comes out, I send Cook County, I go to Chase, I send Cook County, and I pay my tax bill. When my homeowner's insurance payment comes out, I write my insurance company a check, or I put on my credit card, and, and I get charged. So once you're under 80% loan-to-value on Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loans, you're fine. You have the option of not escrowing. If When you're over 80%, most servicers require you to escrow your taxes because once you cross over 80%, it's when it's a higher risk for default. Hope I okay. answered that listener's question. All yeah. right. <clears throat> Very nice. Okay, here we go. I'm still in my home in Chicago thanks to the HAMP program, H-A-M-P, and also had to file bankruptcy in 2012. I still owe 650000 on my home, but I have about $250,000 in equity. My mortgage is at 2%. Can I use some of that equity to pay for a $15,000 new roof? Does a person have to refinance? That's their question. But if you want to get equity out of your house, don't you have to refinance, David? Not, not necessarily. You could, you could tip. Okay, well, let's cover what HAMP is: Home Affordability Modification Program. Okay, that uh, the program expired at the end of 2016, which came out in 2009 to help everybody that had had um, financial challenges during the mortgage meltdown of 2008 through 2010. We had HARP, Home Affordability Refinance Program, right? We had HARP 1.0, 2.0. Bush came out with 1.0. Obama came out with 2.0. Great programs. HAMP is another phenomenal program that the government came out with to help listeners like this um, listener stay in their home, and they modified their loan. So uh, do you have to refinance your 2% loan? I want, right? I'd look at other ways to... Get money out of your house, like maybe through a home equity line of credit, okay? So home equity line of credit is a checkbook against your home that you could access to a portion of the 200000 not going to give you all $200,000. I could tell you another option is is that um, we work with Lindholm Roofing. I've got a show on another station. Lindholm Roofing comes on. That's who I refer all of our listeners to that call in our, to, to my show. Uh, I know that roofing companies have financing uh, opportunities available, right? A new roof could cost eight thousand dollars. It could cost thirty to forty thousand dollars. I mean, if you if you've got uh, a a a big roof with um, with um, shaker, you know, if it's got wood roof, holy smokes, that that's a ton of money. So I would look at doing a home equity line of credit. I could introduce you to my team at BMO BMO Harris for that. Um, and if you don't qualify, because sometimes, Joan, what they do is the the servicers tack that um, when they modify a loan, sometimes put it at the back of the loan and add a second. There are 400 different ways to modify a loan. So if they just extended the loan out and turned a 30 into a 40 or a 50-year loan in order to keep the payment as low as possible so this listener could stay in the home, and drop the rate down so this listener could stay in the home, then that listener might should be able to get a home equity line of credit behind it. If the servicer, when they modified the loan, took the loan amount that they that hadn't been paid or added more as a second behind it, 
it would be impossible to get a loan because there's already a second loan behind it. So it's tough for me to answer the question without specifically knowing what that listener had with the modification, but I would check the modification papers out. I could be more than happy to introduce my team at BMO. They could send me an email, david at 56david.com, or um, the other option is, is to call Lindholm Roofing and ask them to come out, give you a quote, and see what type of financing opportunities they have. Um, 2%, that's a, that's a mortgage we haven't seen for a long time. And real quick, I want to slip yep. in one of our talking points that we talked about. Uh, mortgage rates, I believe uh, I read somewhere for the first time, are falling below 7%. There is a belief that if the Fed continues to drop its rate, that mortgage rates will continue to fall. Um, do you think that's going to happen this year? That's what they're predicting. Yeah, I know. That's what they've been predicting. So, And they also predicted that rates would drop in June, and they didn't. So here's what I know, right? The, the federal, the, uh, the, the, the Fed chair, Powell, came out and said that he anticipates doing three rate cuts next year. Okay, then uh, two weeks later, a week later, uh, one of the presidents of, of, of the local Fed board came out and said that he doesn't believe that. So you've got different opinions on the on the fed okay but the fed chair came out and said that he anticipates three rate cuts so we're just going to go with that all right i can tell you in in october we were quoting listeners rates in the eights okay rates have come down a full point since october and they're now in the high sixes low sevens then they bounce around every day a lot of variables go into it I could I could tell you this what what your listeners don't realize is during the past 24 months we've seen just a rocket ship ride up on interest rates okay and, and during the past 24 months what your listeners don't realize is is that these banks these gone of bastards used to charge 200 basis points above the 10 year note okay so the 10 year note today is around 3.94 Okay, in August of 2020, we're in the middle of COVID, the 10-year note was at 0.52. And when it was at 0.52, we were quoting rates at 2.52, 200 basis points above the 10-year, which is two points above the 10-year. What these banks have done during the past 24 months of increasing interest rates have added another 100 basis points or another one full point onto the interest rate that your listeners and the general public do not realize. So when you've got a 10-year note today at 3.95, 3.96, I don't know what it closed at because I've been on the phone with you, but, you know, three, say 3.95, the 30-year fix should would have been at 5.95. So today you're at 6.95. So where do I think rates are going? I hope hopefully those margins will contract uh, like they had been for the first 21 years I was in the industry because 200 basis points was an acceptable um, good spread between the 10-year and what the banks would make. But for some reason, they threw on an extra full point to further drill homeowners and uh, prospective homeowners and homeowners that are looking to refinance and pay off some of that debt that they've accumulated during this ridiculously suffocating inflation uh, hopefully they they take that point off. Then you would have rates back into the fives, and then you would see a nice little bump in home home ownership because you got a pent up demand uh, that listeners who couldn't afford when rates ticked into the sixes uh, they fell off, and then when rates ticked into the sevens, those in the sixes that only qualified in the sixes fell off. So you'll see a huge push towards home ownership and uh, a push towards home buying again. And I think with those lower rates 
will free up some of those trapped homeowners that have got those ridiculously low, low rates. They'll be willing to go into a rate in the fives as opposed to a rate in the eights with the added equity that they've um, accumulated because there'll be such a demand because there'll be still lack of inventory out there. I am speaking with David Hochberg. He is answering uh, listener questions. We are going to take a real quick break and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are joined by David Hochberg. He is taking your questions. Um, We have a question here. What do you think? Do you have any opinion, David, on velocity, velocity banking? I stumbled across it last night. It sure looks like people could get into some serious hot water. I'm not familiar with velocity banking. Velocity. Velocity. Now you're making me spell. You know, that's my velocity. V-E-L-O-C-I-T-Y. Oh, I had an O. V-E-L. V-E-L what? V-E-L. V-E-L-O-C-I-T-Y. T-E-I banking? Velocity banking. Explain how it should work. Velocity, there's some other options you could use. Uh, at this point, we're covering concept like that. It is time to decide. Call the loss because it helps increase the velocity. Your mortgage debt paid off allows you to pay down the mortgage balance. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this is probably uh, this has been around for years. You take out a home equity line of credit um, and you pay down your. It's been around for years. You know, you 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 take out a home equity line of credit and you got these bunch of like bad, horrible used car salesmen from the 60s. And I respect used car salesmen, but I don't want to throw them on top of this fire that I'm about to light up. Here, this this is using a home equity line of credit to pay off your mortgage faster. That's It says it right there. Velocity Bank involves using home equity line of credit to pay off your mortgage faster. So essentially what you're doing is, and I, and I, and I recommend this to to listeners who have thirty or forty thousand dollars left on their home ec- on their on their mortgage, right? Um, but I won't do it now because the HELOCs are in the are at, you know it's at eight and a half percent today. So if you've got a two or three percent or four percent loan, which most of seventy percent of the United States that has mortgages have rates under five percent, to leave your secure two, three, four percent loan to go into this thing today is absolute financial suicide, in my professional opinion. You want to pay your home off, and plus, if you've got a two, three percent loan, what the hell are you paying your home off faster for? You can earn more money paying off other debt than paying off your house. So don't believe in this crap. It's garbage. Um, if you want to pay your home off faster, uh, pay off your home by sending in extra money every single month and make a note to say principal buy down. Yeah, don't. This is a bunch of garbage. There used to be guys out of Utah that were doing this, and they were charging three thousand dollars to set it up. So don't don't fall for this trap. It's a trap. Okay. Don't do it. All it's right. Ridiculous. Yeah. Especially with the prime at eight and a half percent. You've got a rate under four percent. You're you're crazy to to go into that. Um the next person who texted in said that uh, it looks to them like institutional investors have gobbled up a lot of homes all across the country, and that's artificially driving up the price of homes. Uh, they don't think that this should be legal. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, David? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's supply and demand, right? It's market driven, and I know that the Democrats, uh, some Democratic congressmen and women in uh, in Congress in Washington, 
have presented a bill which would go nowhere in the Republican um, uh, House, but they 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 put in a bill to restrict or to add taxes to when corporation owns homes. Okay, and I will tell you, it's it's a big it's a big occurrence in the warmer weather states like uh, you know the coastal states down south, Texas, Florida, Georgia. The, uh, the Carolinas, it's big down there. Arizona, I know it's not a coastal state, uh, but California, where investors are coming in and buying up large chunks of home, right? It's a double-edged sword, right? I could tell you in 2008, um, 2010, $240,000 homes that were, that were selling for um, $240,000 to $300,000 homes in Romeoville off of I-55 were selling for fifty-five dollars to $80,000 when everything collapsed in 08. And a huge investor came in and bought up a five, uh, bought up I don't know how many, four or five hundred homes, two, two to five hundred homes, and instantaneously solidified the market in Romeoville. And and they put bodies in there to rent it out. Families came back. Uh, they, most of these were empty homes, so they they put renters in there that were renting at a very low at a at a very competitive rate during 08, and those renters were supporting the local community. Right, so so you have to be careful of what of of what you wish for in government intervention because there's always a yin to a yang, right? Here, perfect example of what we talked about: government uh, e- e- intervention in HAMP and HARP. Those were great programs, hurt absolutely nobody. It solidified the market and it bounced back. But you know, if you put taxes on these on these companies to buy these homes, that might slow down the purchases. Yeah, but. When they come in and write gigantic checks for a block of homes, and you're a home seller, you know what? What are you going to do? You're not going to take that. You're going to you know turn the wire down when the wire hits your bank to get you out of financial challenges instead of piecemealing those hundred homes that you have to sell. So, is it hurting the market? And in, in some markets, yeah. But I can tell you right now, I just saw something. Somebody just sent me something. My my assistant just sent me something this morning that. One of the, if I could find it real quick, she sent me something, Anna, that there was a huge, um, uh, where is it? I can't, I can't find it right now. But she sent me something where there, a large um, REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust, is now dumping real estate because it's not a good investment. So they're putting the inventory that they have, which I think was 1,100 homes, back on the market. It was mostly in the south and southeast, so it's not having any impact here. Because why would investors come up here and buy property with the ridiculous real estate taxes we pay? They can't make any money on those homes in a, in a large chunk like they do down south with the lower okay. real estate tax. Um, I wanted to, to talk to you too um, um, about this Axios uh, Chicago report that came out over the weekend that said that real estate experts are predicting that the market in 2024 will be less stagnant, but not wildly different. What are your predictions, David, for 2024? Yeah. Well, yeah, well, I think I just covered it, right? As, as the rates come down, you'll have uh, more opportunities for uh, buyers to get back in the game, right? You'll have more opportunities for homeowners to get out of the home that they're in and out of their two and 3% loans. And some, some of their, a lot of the homeowners, um, almost 40% of the homeowners in the United States own their home free and clear. So they're just waiting for something to happen on the other side. They don't want to sell their home and go into a mortgage uh, 
at eight percent, right? But they would sell their home and most likely go into a mortgage at five percent with the added equity that they've acquired. What do I mean by that? Well, if they're sitting in a four hundred thousand dollar home that was worth two hundred fifty thousand dollars at the beginning of COVID, and yes, homes have shot up that much, and then all of a sudden rates come back down into the fives, and you now have everybody that got knocked out when the rates went to seven and a half and above come back in and everybody that got knocked out when the rates turned into the sixes come back in, that, that house is going to appreciate even more. And they're going to have a bigger bit of a bigger pool of equity to put down on their next house. And whatever mortgage they're carrying, even if it starts with the five is going to be less in a payment because they're putting a lot more down from the equity of the home that they're selling. So I do think as the, well, I do know, I could tell you firsthand, we're starting to get calls coming out of the woodworks. Hey, if, when it gets back into the sixes, I want to, I'm going to be buying a house and I couldn't afford it in the sevens. We, my team's already received those calls right in the past week. So I know it's happening and I know that the realtors I'm working with are, 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 are receiving uh, inbound calls from those same buyers that, you know, not necessarily used us for a mortgage, but said, Hey, once it hits the sixes, I can afford to buy again. And they're getting itchy and starting to fire out, uh, listing opportunities and MLS searches are being set up for those prospective buyers. So I do believe with the Axio story, um, I think it's going to, it's going to free up a lot of the homes that homeowners are sitting on and um, they'll consider taking the money and taking the profit and getting out of, uh, and getting out of their home and possibly moving to another state, which is a lot of our, a lot of our listeners who are retiring are moving to another state because of the low, you know, lower taxes in um in in the southern states um a couple of uh, just a couple of notes to make you smile someone texted in that they loved your assessment of christmas something along the lines of people buying things they can't afford to give to others who don't even want them <laughs> um and also yeah. i don't know if you checked your email somebody texted in a house that is for sale uh, and it is literally like a, a stone's throw from Lambeau Field. They just thought it was funny. There's like, you know, Lambeau Field where the Packers play. And then there's grass yeah. around it. And then there's just like this house sitting there. Um, and apparently it's for sale. Um, and they thought you would find that amusing and wanted no, to share it. it's a good investment. It's think? a great investment. You could have... Uh, eight, eight. Actually, I think they played two preseason games there, and if they make the playoffs, you know, you could get uh, eight, at least eight, probably ten games that you can make a fortune on parking, and probably <laughs> rent that house out to crazy Packer fans and they're rabid Packer. And I say that out of respect to Packer fans. I'm not being demeaning at all. I mean, those Packer fans are just as rabid as the Bears fans are. And, you know, you might have to have a huge security deposit because somebody might go through a wall or a window, but uh, it might be a good investment opportunity for an Airbnb for a Packers game. That would be awesome. <laughs> well, okay, then. Um, okay, then. Yeah. Uh, we got a professional assessment here. And um, the house, I think, is like on Zillow or somewhere. If you guys, if you want to look it up, I don't have an address. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for answering everybody's questions. Really, really appreciate it. Hope you have a wonderful, wonderful holiday. Thank you. You too. And you could send all the birthday gifts to thirty six thirty six. Uh, no, never mind. You could just, uh, yeah. No, I appreciate you getting. In all seriousness, I appreciate you. Uh, 
Give me the opportunity this year over the past 12 months to answer your listeners' questions and share my knowledge and expertise to hopefully put them in a better spot for them and their family to be financially um, independent in the future. Well, it is indeed my pleasure. And as for your birthday gift, I think just just knowing me is really a gift. I think that we have to yeah. look at it that way. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, that and cash. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, that... <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, okay. that yeah, that doesn't pay the sixty bucks I put in my tank, but it does. Okay. It does go a long way. I appreciate it. If you want to see that house, it's on a social media post today in sports. Today in sports company. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay, that's going to do it for me. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is next. I will see you tomorrow at two o'clock. Good night, my friends.